not everyone who experiences trauma is going to become an addict. But most addicts, particularly those who finally get into recovery, but most addicts have experienced some trauma. I think we all have. Hi, guys. This podcast explores the importance of our connection, well-being, and mental health. To reason with someone is to motivate them to do or accept topics, ideas, and issues through discussion and having conversations. This podcast is for those that want to raise their awareness, change their perspective, or just have a good time. My vision is to help people find reason to live, to grow, and to understand. I do that through this podcast, as well as counselling individuals that want to help themselves. No, no, no. No, he needs to know. I just think he's going to talk and it's going to make a lot of sense. Hold up. Wait a minute. Something ain't right. One man. One podcast. Three, two, one. It's time! Welcome back. Today we have Diane Young. She's a passionate advocate of clear communication. Talking, simply talking, can help us make sense of that sometimes troublesome, confusing, and perplexing thing we call life. In other words, shed light on it. Working with what presents today in our lives can lead to a deep understanding of how we find ourselves in a place we did not expect, how we work in the world, and how we can, with assistance, accept and work towards changing our life direction and live with more freedom, choice, and joy. As a uniquely skilled psychotherapist and counsellor, Di brings a broad professional repertoire and understanding of corporate culture to her work by using a holistic approach to therapy. She's trained in process-orientated psychology and has additional trainings and experience in trauma, grief, substance use, addiction, and relationships. All right, Di, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jackson. It's so good to see you. Let's let's jump straight in. I want to know who the hell are you and what do you do? Okay, so uh, I'm now a psychotherapist and a counsellor and, uh, and I see people on a one-on-one basis. I see some couples and, I'm, and I do some group work. Um, who am I? I guess, uh, I, you know, to put it in a context for those that are listening, I'm a 64-year-old woman who... Uh, grew up with addiction in my family, saw the devastation of it, vowed I was never going to be like it, ended up exactly like them. Mm. Uh, I made the distinction, distinction that, you know, I used drugs and was way cooler than my alcoholic parents. Uh, got into recovery at a young age and uh, because I was at rock bottom at a young age and no safety net much like the youth you work with, I think, uh, and um, then sort of pulled a life together. Had a publishing business for 24 years, which was successful, sold that and thought, I'm just going to sort of study now because I've got time. I'm not working 60 hours a week. And thought I would do uh, some counselling study because I was interested. Uh, and then, of course, as as is the way, halfway through they say, well, you've got to do placement, you've got to get clinical hours. And I was horrified and thought, I'm just doing this for the joy of it. And they went, well, you can do it for the mm. joy of it, but mm. you won't qualify if you don't do it. So mm. it grew out of that, and I suppose I uh, finished about six or seven years ago. And and therefore the second career has taken off, Jackson, <laughs> in a way that I didn't think it would. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm really glad that someone like yourself is in the field to be able to tell your story and and work it to create the change. So how did how how did you get the recovery? Well, so uh, so I'm at rock bottom. Uh, I've got no. I'm homeless, jobless, and friendless. Uh, there's the only people that were interested in my well-being at that point in my life was the police. Um, and so I ended up uh, being uh, befriended, I put that in quotes, by a man who was significantly older than me who took me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, Narcotics Anonymous didn't exist in Sydney in those days, so I'm 45 years in recovery now. And uh, he sort of took me there and that sort of started my journey. I didn't like it just quietly. I thought it was terrible. You know, I thought my mother needed, I said, my mother needs to be here. I don't need to be here, right? Yeah. So that kind of started. It was a very different era then, though, Jackson. There were not the private psych hospitals or even the awareness around addiction and certainly not the awareness of the connection between addiction and trauma or addiction and ADHD. None of that was Mm. known at that Mm. point. Mm. yeah and 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 i think that's such a more challenging way to go because you just sort of i think they call it a you know a dry drunk you just didn't oh, well you cold turkey the withdrawal that's for sure there's nobody handing you a pill saying have a little rest today and you don't need to go to group do you it's like you know get up or die kind of thing and many of them died of course i you probably don't remember jackson because you're not of the same vintage as i am <laughs> but they, uh, it's vintage. very well there's a very well-known um, uh, songwriter called Neil Young, and he he wrote a song which was a hit, of course. It was, uh, and the song was "Every Junkie's Like a Setting Sun," and that was what I felt like my life was going to be. I thought if I made it to twenty, I'd be doing well. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, it's a it's a fascinating experience now when I observe the kind of support that is available to somebody who reaches out and says, "Look, I need help." There is help available, right? It wasn't sort of back then. I don't even know how I survived it now when I think about it. So AA was one of the cornerstones to survival. Yes, but, of course, as you know now and in the profession, we understand the connection between addiction and trauma. And it wasn't until I was some years into my recovery that, you know, like um, so I've gotten clean, I've gotten sober, I'm getting a career together in the publishing world you know, I'm saying I have relationships that are reasonably functional, reasonably, I say in quotes, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, what happens is life starts to slap me around a bit. Now, I don't know why this is happening and what I start to understand as I start to reach out to the odd counsellor who was around in those days that my childhood, my the impact of being raised in that alcoholic family do you know the averse childhood experiences you know the Mm. you know done research about um you grow up in an addicted family or you grow up in a family with mental illness the outcome for the child's the same that is they you know they're traumatized they don't understand where they fit Mm. in the world Mm. and um, you know often that low self-esteem and all of those things that we know about yeah, so there just wasn't really that that gap. So how would you describe AA and, and I guess the needs that it sort of meets for people? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, AA, those tw- all of those 12-step programs, doesn't matter which one, whether you're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers yeah. Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, I mean, 
do you know, it goes on, Sex Addicts Anonymous, Sex Coda. Yeah, Coda, that's right. Um, they all have an underpinning of a 12-step process. And um, it's interesting, you know, Jackson, I've been at many addiction conferences and in one of them I was at an addiction conference and there was a man doing a keynote address about addiction and he mentioned that he thought um, professional work with the client and them sitting in uh, any 12-step program that worked for them was the best way for them to recover because they get both, you see. Yeah, yeah. The one thing that, you know, that Gabor Mate says is mm. that addiction, the opposite of addiction, what is it? Everyone goes, sobriety, sobriety. No, 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 connection. Connection, that's it. And the thing that addicts get in 12-step recovery is absolutely that. They get connection with each other. There's a sense that their story is kind of running about average, you know, because addicts come in with such devastation. I mean, you know, you work, you've worked with them and you continue to. They come in with such devastation that they think there's no way back. I can't recover. I'm broken. You know, I've done all this terrible stuff. Yeah. And you go to a 12-step meeting and, you know, with with great respect, they're laughing about some of the stuff they got up to because it's like, yeah, right, that happened to me. Oh, my God, and I did that too. Oh, and that, yeah. you did that. You know, so there's this sort of it's nearly like in a sense for them there's a normalisation about if I am an addict person, whichever persuasion, I will act out in a certain way. I'll use a substance or a mood disorder or whatever it is so that I don't feel my under the underlying cause, which is usually trauma-based and pain. Mm. Yeah, I think Gabor also says that it might not come from exact trauma, but everything comes back to that painful experience. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's true. I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, but... I, I remember hearing somebody said he said something about not everyone who experiences trauma is going to become an addict, but most addicts, particularly those who finally get into recovery, but most addicts have experienced some trauma. I think we all have. Yes, well, that, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and uh, I've been speaking a lot about it at the moment, just like every single person has this core belief about themselves, whether they had the most amazing childhood or, or they didn't, we all have that, that critic that, that says stuff. And, you know, the more we sort of get to know that, the more we stop going when the junkies on the news that, that you know, did something crazy and now it's gone to jail, we say, Oh, good riddance. Thank God. Rather than, well, actually I understand where my core belief is. And maybe that's what drove that person to do what they're doing today yes i think it was portugal that decriminalized drug addiction that's it and yeah. stopped pouring pouring the parole addicts into jail and actually poured the same money into treatment of course surprise surprise what's happened is the re- addiction rate's gone down so Absolutely. yeah like look at that who would have thought <laughs> yeah. i mean and i understand the person on the street uh and look i had a phone call from a woman during the week whom i don't know i have never met uh, she'd been referred to me. Her son is young and, um, you know, she's concerned about his drinking. I don't know if he, if she's he's taking any drugs or anything, but anyway. So I spoke to her for probably, I don't know, five or ten minutes about what was offered and suggested a few people and said I can come back with suggestions of referrals if, you know, he wants to say man or whatever it is. And she's in desperate, she was desperately distressed and upset. 
you know, the hardest thing for parents often, and I mean, I'm, I'm a parent myself, my daughter, strangely enough, and thank God, has no addiction issues at all. Yeah. But I can imagine that if she did, you know, I'd be wanting to do everything mm. to save her, keep her alive. And, of course, you and I both know that, that often enabling behaviour mm. just mm. keeps them out there for longer. Yeah, exactly. Know? Exactly. And and where we, where we just need to start is going, I think we go, you know, get in, you know, go into your time out of the home. It's like how mm. much of the connection did we actually try within the home first? Yes, yeah. Half the time. And, you know, I've, yeah, and I've often spoken about interventions with families who are very concerned, you know. Write the letter. Everybody mm. write a letter, not a long one, two or three paragraphs about how the addict's behaviour is impacting them, not in a critical way, but this is what mm. I'm concerned about. This mm. is how I feel about you being distressed and upset mm. and mm. not coming until all hours of the day and night and sit with them and everyone gets a chance to read it out. And the final has to be, and we want you to now go into treatment. Now, if, you know, there's that conception, you know, with, um, you know, with constellation work, for example, we, we always give the addiction a space in the, in the constellation space. It's an energy just like everything else, has to be respected in some way. And the part of us that's addicted has to be respected also. Mm. Because if we don't name that, we're missing a whole power of energy that sort of lingers around in the room that we're not naming, right? Yeah. And, look, in that concept of energy that you've raised, Jackson, I think you're absolutely right. There's uh, there's a part of um, the part of me that was addicted that no longer uses any substances and hasn't for decades. Uh, you know, she can be alive and well if she's not treated properly, you know. And um, and to a large ex- a part, I believe that that part that nearly killed me, if I can work with it with a professional and get the right treatment, then that's the part that's going to actually propel me to actually be successful in my life with some sense of purpose and energy. So it's not all bad. Yeah. But when we're, in, when we're at that rock bottom stage and life is looking totally disastrous and we look failure on every front and people are turning their backs on us, we think we'll never ever be able to navigate our way through it, and and that's I guess that's that's one of the hardest parts. Is it isolates us? It keeps you know we keep withdrawing from others because of you know we don't want to disappoint or we're always too far gone or we can't fix it. And all these things are further along this disconnection, right? Yeah, yeah, and the shame. Yeah, the shame. Oh. You know, and you know. The toxic level of shame with worthlessness. Well, show me an addict and I will show you someone who feels like they're worthless unless they're off their face. They don't feel like they're worthless. They feel like they're invincible. But, you know, if they're coming down or they're sick, mm. it's mm. they can see the mess that they're in. Mm. And then that shame comes back and that, you know, immediate reward or temporary relief just stops and they're mm. gone. oh, that's right. I mm. don't. I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I'm worthy. Yeah. And, this is and you mentioned the core belief earlier. You know, the core belief is mine was I don't matter. Yeah, me too. Me too. Now, in, in interestingly enough, when I look at my life now and probably for the last 40 years or so, nothing about me looks like I don't matter. Exactly. But, you know, for a lot of that first sort of years into recovery, I was, I was struggling with that, hmm. you know. It's like it's that the lens I look through. Yeah. Whatever your behaviour, whoever you are in my life and whatever your behaviour towards me, I see that as I don't matter. Mm. It's 
until you work with people and have them feel into that, that they can really go, I, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. That's exactly what I do to myself. And you also mentioned um, the critic, you know, critic, and you talked earlier about, you know, what's the book? Well, the book that I would say that tra- transformed my life in recovery, and it's many years ago now, was Embracing the Inner Critic by Hal, Hal and Sharon Stone, I think. It is yeah. it's a very old book. Yeah, I haven't read that but one. It was, yeah, it was one of the first that was written about uh, the different selves we have and mm. what's that in critic, you know, what's it saying and how much does it drive us? Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's probably a good little segue is if that I don't matter, you know, I know you said it sort of transform. It doesn't look like that's the way life is anymore. How do you, where do you pull your strength to keep going in recovery, but also in the work that you do that, that is intense? That, well, it, it, there were a couple of things about the I don't matter. I mean, I'm a, people will laugh at this, I'm sure, unless they've done it themselves, then they won't laugh. Uh, I'm a big I'm a big believer in affirmations. So if I'm walking around without realizing that my core belief is I don't matter, and I'm not doing anything actively to try and turn that around, then I'm, mm. I'm always I'm always beholden to it. So yeah. I will find myself even when I'm walking Charlie the dog uh, in the morning. You know, I Diane matter. Now I don't have to do it very much these days because it's not it doesn't run me like it used to. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I think meditation and today we call it mindfulness. Meditation is really important to me. And I'm not sure about you, but when I'm working with people, there will often be uh, some sessions that are hard. They're hard, you know, mm-hmm. and I need to do kind of shut the door, just do a ten minute meditation to try and let go of it before I see the next person. So um, I'm very big on self-care. I remember a woman years and years ago in 12-step recovery, I said to her, I'm really good with the self-care. She said, well, tell me what you do for self-care, Diane. I said, oh, you know, I get the hair done and the nails done and the massages and all this stuff. She said, oh, Diane. The pampering. pampering. That's not self-care, she said to me. I said, what is it? What is it? She said, it's self-maintenance. I said, I don't know. Well, I said, then I don't know what. I don't know what self-care is. She said, well, self-care is getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, eating properly, spending time with people that nourish your soul, don't take away from it. I went, right, okay, that's another level altogether, isn't it? You know? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's. I think that's what it's all about is, is it sounds like, you know, the strength that comes from you is being able to really know what it is that you need. And, yes, and, and, and reach out for help when I don't know, I, you know, and reach out to other, you know, colleagues and stuff that I trust and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm feeling like, a, you know, I'm working very hard right now. You know, I mean, I, a friend of mine offered to come to Orange this weekend, right? Well, I've t- taken Monday off, so I'm having three days. And I jumped at it because I know if I'm out of Sydney and I'm with the dog and I'm just doing what I do in Orange, which is rest and cook and, you know, walk and all that stuff, mm. I will be rejuvenated, mm. do you know. It's a beautiful time for you. It's autumn. The leaves are changing. It's a little cold now, Jackson. Yeah. But I mean, a beautiful day, you know. Well, yeah, and then you get the put the colour on, get those senses met and get all cosy and stuff just as good for yeah. the soul too. Exactly. So it's very interesting working with people when they're in early recovery because often now with the knowledge about trauma, people will often come and see me and say, okay, I want to, want to sort out all my childhood trauma. I want to put that to rest, put that to rest. So then 
I'll be okay. You know, my addiction will be sort of under control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they don't sort of get that we're dealing with two, well, this is how I would put it together, two different Mm. systems. One is the childhood trauma Mm. in whatever way it presents and the other one is addiction, which is standalone. Yeah. Yeah. So I often say to people, we can work therapeutically with the the, um, childhood trauma but the addiction has to be handled by abstinence for a time. So if you are an addict or an alcoholic, you need to make that choice. Most of them say mm. yes after three months. It's like, yeah, right. I really <laughs> see how messy I was. Yeah. You know, that's often with the help of 12-step because they need to be bonded in with a fellowship that supports them. Yeah. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that we need a, I guess, uh, you know, look at where our, our use is or whatever our activity or behaviour of addiction that we're doing. Why do we need to yeah. sort of work on that first? Because without abstinence, they won't have any awareness around anything else because addicts are classic. Like we'll tell a lie when the truth would do. <laughs> it's, a dreadful, it's a dreadful, uh, dreadful um Joke in 12, you know, how do you tell when an addict's lying? Their mouth's moving, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, like we'll even when it wouldn't matter if we tell the truth, we'll actually embellish it, you know, like it'll make it feel sound better or worse or something. Yeah, so I think yeah. there's and I think there's a landing we have to do, you know, I think there's a yeah. point at which we have to actually go, okay, I really do need help with that, I need to stop for a time, and they might need therapeutic intervention to do that to detox you can't be stable you wouldn't be stable no you're not i mean i shook shook my way through my withdrawals in the back blocks of narrabeen in a caravan i don't advise it for anybody but that was the way it worked for me and i remember i remember that i mean i won't forget it ever and um now of course we have we have an ability to have you know whatever drugs are given to us to ease the withdrawal. And I think that's very wise because I actually, I don't know the stats, Jackson, but I'd be surprised since harm minimisation came in uh, as an accepted treatment to keep addicts alive, I would believe there's less overdoses than there used to be. That would be my belief. Now, I don't have a statistic to back that up. But a lot of them, yeah. So, and I know a lot of people in 12-step were sort of anti the self-harm, Self-harm model, you know, the harm minimisation model, I'm sorry. Yeah. But that's only because they they were clean and sober. Yeah. But a lot of people take their time. You know, they'll often, I mean, many come into recovery and then they'll go to smart recovery for a time. Now, smart recovery is about controlled drinking. Addict and alcoholic aren't going to manage to do that, but they probably need to try it one more time to make sure that they know that they can't do it. Mm, just know? more research. Yes, exactly. Well, it's exactly what it is. It, it, and... And I don't, you know, I do know some people who are forced by their families into recovery or forced into, you know, a detox um, or hospital or something, and they don't, they're not willing. They're not at all willing. But something sometimes can shift in that, you know, like intake, for example, a three-week intake, something can shift where they start to see that there's a different way. They're looking at other people who are recovering and think maybe I'm a chance. Yeah. You know. Mm. So you're you're there, you're there at the South Pacific Private Treatment Addiction Center down in South Curl Curl. 
So obviously it you know does a does a whole bunch of what we've just spoken about, but then you run a program once that safety and stabilization has, I guess, yeah. been able to land for people. You do a a what's called a changes program. So can can you talk talk to talk me through that and how that I guess benefits some some people and why it's so effective. Um, the changes program, as you say, is a five-day experiential intensive program. Um, so within the 54-bed hospital that South Pacific is, they will pick six, seven people that are ready and able to hold emotionally. I mean, a lot of people go into South Pacific and they want to do the changes program because it has a good reputation, I guess. Yeah, that's right. But the truth of it is, Jackson, that not everybody can hold because you're actually going to go back in and really unpack your trauma. Um, the program is focuses on 0 to 17 years of age. Often when I'm working with people, if I, ha if I have a small group, I'll let them go to more recent things. So somebody may have had some sort of trauma happen when they're 35. And I say, well, bring it in. And the interesting thing for me is that often people will see, they know that what happened at 35 was traumatic for them, but they can't see until it's pointed out to them and it's laid out in front of them that what happened at 35 is actually directly linked to what happened to them when they were seven, yeah. you know, six. Yeah. So sometimes it's, you know, if you stop at 17, and I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but you know me, Jackson, I sometimes, you know, extend things a little if I think yeah. it's going to help. And then, and yeah. then, you know, they go, oh, I've got, I see that connection, you know, that that was happening and then I've created, you know, sort of co-created this. And mm. so it's often an opportunity. So the first process, of course, is the, this is what happened to me and about that I feel this. And, and it is about a feelings-based experience because, you know, it's the somatic psychotherapy. It's being able to go back into yeah. even if people say to me and often will say to me, I don't remember anything before the age of seven. I've got no memory. Right? Now, that's a trauma response. You and I both know that. Mm. So I say, okay, you don't remember cognitively what happened to you before seven, but your body remembers. Yeah. So when we're working, I'm going to ask you about what happened, you know, what, what, you know, just how you're feeling. And there'll be all sorts of stuff, heat, you know, cold. I mean, all sorts of stuff comes up. And, and, and I say to them, we don't need to necessarily have the whole story in place because God knows, Jackson, we've all got a story. You've got one. I've got one. Sure do. People who are have got one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've all got a story. But it's what do we do with how we feel about what happened to us? or where we find ourselves in our lives today that matters. That's where the healing takes place. And, of course, the second process is when we go back and we it's shame reduction work. Mm. So it's mm. a lot about handing back the shame, the pain, the anger, the rage, fear, loneliness that we've carried mm. from back then that we didn't even know we were carrying. That isn't ours. It isn't, sorry? An it ours. isn't ours. In, that shame... Yes, it is not ours. Yes, that's exactly right. It is not ours. It belongs to them. And it's interesting, you know, when you're doing that work and you're asking someone to in a process because they're in a sort of meditative state. And when working with them as a therapist, what I find is that I'm usually sitting very close to them and 
I can feel a lot of what they feel. Now, I'm not psychic, okay? They often think I am. I'm not. But they can feel, I can feel that. I say, my God, I'm getting really hot, you know, like I'll be. And, uh, and mm. they go, yeah, I'm so angry, right? Oh, good, okay. Now, this is, you know, anger. You know, we've had plenty of clients that rage. You know, they can rage at the drop of a hat, right? But there are those people who never feel their anger and largely it's because they were not allowed to when they were children or they're frightened of it. They're frightened of what they'll do if they actually manage to tap into it. So we're giving them a safe space to do that. Mm. Like that's such a gift because yeah. even in one-on-one private practice, it's very hard to do that with any depth. I mean, I say that to my individual clients. You can't do, cha- you know, I can do changes here, but I won't because I'm not going to do changes with you, the kind of processes I do, and put you in the car and send you home to make spaghetti bolognese for the kids. You know, I'm not going to do that because yeah, yeah. I don't know how you're, going to, how you're going to react to it, you know. Yeah, it's a very different place where we where we go, all right, see you later, have fun in the community yeah. um, where you right. are and going drive Track it. Yeah, six lanes of Sydney traffic. Just manage that after you've done a process. I don't think so. And go back to the same environment that actually is creating a lot more of this problem for you. Yes, yes. Yeah. And try and then try and try and explain it to somebody. I mean, it just doesn't happen. I mean, I know that there's a push at South Pacific. I've actually pushed very hard for it to be, for changes to be a standalone program. So instead of having to do three weeks and the last week be the changes week. Yeah. If people are regulated enough and they've got a good therapist like yourself or me or something like that, and we can take them through what's going to happen, they go in for like nine days or 10 days or something. Do you know? So it's it's so needed, right? And and yeah. the power that I and I know firsthand when when you know someone will come out of there going, What in the world did I just do to me? I'm like, you did it for yourself, and <laughs> I somehow pulled it out of you, but That's, you know, yeah, it's so powerful. And yeah, and and I'm so grateful that, you know, there's therapists like you that they can hold that space because that's really, really, really intense and hard stuff. That's right. And there's, therein lies why I need self-care and why I'm in orange this weekend. <laughs> so, so Di, we'll wind down as much as I don't want to. What, what, is, what is number one non-negotiable self-care for you? Uh, turn off my phone and rest. And, and, and walk the dog. Walk the dog. Charlie, Charlie Chops, very handsome spoodle, Jackson. Uh, Charlie Chops, very well known in Balmain. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I know that when I'm out dog park walking with him, the dog park people are not thinking about trauma. They're not thinking about anything other than the dog. And it allows me to land a bit in the day-to-day minutiae of life, you know. Yeah, it really takes that hat off and puts on the I am a beautiful dog parent and I can yeah. do my day. So like my granddaughter who's six, I said to her, I said to her, I always pretend that I can hear what Charlie's saying. And she goes, I, Nan, I can't hear what he's saying. I say, What do you can't hear what he's saying? She says, no, no, no. I said, he said he likes your dress. Oh, she says, Do you really like my dress, Charlie? She'll stand in front of me. Charlie's just looking at her, right? And I say to her, Well, I am his mum, you know, I do know. She says, Nan, Nan, you're not his mum. I said, aren't I his mum? What am I? She said, you're his owner. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to, I think there's also an element, and I and I don't probably do enough of it, Jackson, of playing in my life. I don't know. I, all the experiences I have of you, Di, we had a pretty good laugh and it was always 
no bullshit, pretty ruthless, just bang, bang, bang. And if you don't have a sense of humor and if you don't have the ability to laugh at yourself, well, then you might as well bust, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's definitely something that I admire about you, especially what, what you bring out of me. I'm like, you know, all of a sudden I'm having fun and it's great. And, you know, the rest of all these therapists are a bit too serious, you know? So I, I do really appreciate that about you. And without that, what, you know, well, with that, it helps clients, that's for sure, you know, allows such a safer place and, you know, you're real with them. Yeah. Well, I try to be, I, you know, I, I try to be. I don't try to pretend to be anything other than who I am. I mean, I, I think the interesting thing, I sit, I sit in a Yalom group once a month and that's the hardest work I do for myself and I sit with seven other therapists. Mm. It's like mm. really hard that Yeah, work. I bet. I just joined mine yeah, last now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I find it really, I find it really hard, but I really grow a lot out of it. And yeah. um, I absolutely accept my strength now. For years, I wanted to be one of those women that sort of, or girls that knitted, you know, and sort of was gentle and cooked baked cakes and all that. You know, like I'm not right. I'm just not like that. But <laughs> what I now accept about myself is that I that I am strong, but as equally strong as I am, I have a capacity to be vulnerable. I think that's what makes therapists good when they can hold both parts you know the strength and yeah. what is it the empathy maybe would you say the compassion what would you call it Jackson well I think you know I probably be just that real authenticness that you know I'm obviously doing this work because I'm compassionate and I care and I have empathy but you know yeah. I'm real as well and and that's gonna be the human side of me that's gonna come out too yeah. and that's that power and that is empowering as well to even let that come through which and you definitely do that <laughs> i also know that one of the things that happens and i think it happens for therapists but it also happens for people like me in recovery who so so we're in both hats so life doesn't stop happening because you get to understand some of this stuff mm. you know mm -hmm. like there are the swings of outrageous fortune that happen you know and it's not all an easy gig mm. just our own personal lives you know that's the other reason i think we've got to be um, staying current, you know, and reaching out for help when we're talking to people about what's going on for us and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. If I, you know, I'm super codependent. If I didn't, if I didn't work <laughs> on myself every day and call myself out on it, I'd just keep going back to you know what works for me, which is to light myself on fire to keep everybody else warm. You know, so yes, yes, I like that. Light myself on fire to keep everybody else warm. Oh, I'm going to borrow that. Yeah, yeah, take that. I think actually, um, I wouldn't, I shouldn't be telling this to the podcast, but I think it was, I heard it from Luke, Luke Reese. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. And, and yes, I, no, I that sounds like something Luke would say. Yes, that's and, right. And it, that's very resonated with me ever since because that's exactly what I did and what we'll do again if I don't look out from check myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Diet. Where can people find you? How do people get in contact with you? I know you're very, very popular in the AA community, but but how else can people um, get? Oh, look, I have, a, I have a website, you know, it's dieyoung.com.au. It's very easy to find. I have a booking component. I'm about to change things so I can free up some more time because I'm probably a little time poor. But I do have a waiting list. And interestingly enough, I think people will say to me, look, I don't, you know, I can't wait to whenever it is that I'm booked. Can you put me on the waiting list? And, and I say, sure, yeah, no problem at all. Put you on the waiting. And, it, and if they need to be there earlier than their appointed time, 
someone will be able to cancel and mm. they'll get a spot. You know, so it happens all the time. I happened this week. Somebody I did changes with last week reached out. She couldn't get into July. It was crazy. And I said, let's just see what happens. I got a cancellation on Friday. I knew she was a bit critical, so I slipped her in, you know. Yeah, that's it. So, you know, it's like just book. It's, you know, if we're meant to get together, we will. And inevitably we do, you know. It's very, very to me, yeah. Yeah, and that's just the way it works, isn't it? And trusting that yeah. process is is all part of it. Yeah, mm. I think that's very true, very true. And I'm sure you find the same thing. Yeah, well, um, Di, it's been an absolute honour to have you on the podcast and uh, always love chatting with you and seeing where you're at you. and, and all the beautiful work that you're doing in the community. So thank you so much for coming. You're very welcome, Jackson, and it's delightful to see you and, and thank you very much for having me. Thanks. Do you want to find out more about how therapy can help you kick some goals? Go check out findreasontherapy.com.au or the Find Reason Therapy Instagram page.